advisory to those who are not animal lovers, open to new ideas, or interested in integrative holistic healthcare for your pets, and believe that prescription diet is the best food for your pet. This podcast may offend your sensibilities. Have you ever felt frustrated and helpless after listening and doing everything your vet told you to do but it only made your sick pet worse and not get any better? That's me in 2008 with my first adopted cat, Meow. I did everything the vet told me to do and I realised she wasn't getting any better and only worse. So I decided to look into alternative health options and was drawn to the stories of holistic pet service entrepreneurs and their transformative journey, overcoming obstacles, chasing their passion and creating a movement that has caused a ripple effect of positive change in the lives of their clients and pets around the world. Join me as I share the raw, inspiring journeys of these amazing entrepreneurs, their successes and failures. My name is Amrys Wang, and this is The Raw Entrepreneur. Good morning, everyone. This is Amrys Wang of The Raw Entrepreneur. Today's episode is part three of Daniel Rago's interview. Daniel Rago is a well-known and respected advocate among the fresh feeding community for his work at Keto Pet Sanctuary and contribution to the dog cancer series. This is his story. When you sort of tell people to feed a, you know, biologically or species appropriate diet for say your cats and dogs, they'll ask you, how do you translate that in today's, today's world? You know, uh, you know, um, they're like, I can't. And it's always to do with geographic location as well. For instance, mm. yeah. in Singapore, we are a tiny island. We have no agricultural land. We're not a farm. You know, everything is imported into the country. Um, so the, you know, like in the US where you can work with your hunters or you can go hunting for food, yeah. you can get, you can shoot an elk right. and butcher it yourself, yeah. you know, yeah. uh, um, things like that. Uh, it's it's so much easier for you know for your geographic location over there. Whereas for us, uh, for our local community, when you tell them species appropriate diet, they'll be like, "What chicken?" Because <laughs> yeah. the only thing they can think of is like, "Oh, if I rear some chicken in the old days in the in the village, you know, uh, before modernization of Singapore, people would have." chickens roaming around, you know, on, on uh, their, their, their little farms and stuff. But if you're talking about our fish, because we're an island nation, so seafood is, is um, popular because, you know, you can go and fish. So for our locals, when you tell them, like, is it, is it good enough for them to just feed chicken? Is so, that, yeah. that healthy enough? So the, the, I mean, here's here's the great news, right? If if you want to give your dog some chicken, it, it, the, the, you're you're not moving backwards. But if the question is, hey, what constitutes a sustainable form of nutrition over the lifetime of a dog? Then you have to bring in other considerations. Uh, and there's a little thought experiment that I always find helpful. It applies to humans and dogs. If you were stranded on a ship in the middle of the ocean or stranded on an island in the middle of the ocean. And you could only pick one food to live on the, the rest of your life. What would be the one food that you could pick that would allow you to survive, right? And there's really only one answer. It's meat, right? So it's a red meat, some form of red meat, right? It could be a bison, it could be an elk, it could be a cow, it could be a deer, right? It couldn't be a chicken and it couldn't be a fish. Right? It could be a seal. Right? It doesn't mean it couldn't come from the sea. Point being is that you have to have something that has the sufficient macronutrient and micronutrient composition that would allow you to survive in perpetuity off of just one food item. And so that's not suggesting that there shouldn't be a variety of foods uh, in our diet as humans or, or in our dog's diet. Um, but it does offer us some insight when we consider what is the preeminent food 
that would comprise the majority of, of their nutrition. If dogs want to eat fish or chicken or, you know, something else, it's not going to move them backwards. If that was exclusively their, uh, their meal program, you could see some potentially see some de uh, deficiencies, micronutrient deficiencies develop. You know, it could take years. Micronutrient deficiencies are not easy to develop. They do take time. Uh, but if all you fed your dog was fish, you might see some low vitamin B, things like that. Yeah, because, you know, I'm thinking like if Singapore, if I was to rewind time, say 100 years, 200 years ago, and we were, you know, not modernized and truly a village in an island, mm -hmm. a stray dog, for instance, or even a stray cat, they would be hunting in the jungle or, you know, the wildlife where they would probably have a variety of things from rodents to rabbits right. to I don't know if they'll eat snake, but you know, uh, seen dogs eat you know, yeah, or remember, pigs dogs or wild balls too. or something. Mm. Uh, you know, yeah. So that that's 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 a good point because I get this question from pet parents sometimes when you know trying to to switch them to a raw food diet, and not all the time say they are willing to spend on a commercial raw food product because it costs it's more expensive yeah. you know so so i i usually have to try and, and 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 help them think of like more economical ways of mixing and matching you know yeah of uh you know like you know like what what is easy for them to buy say from the market you know um like from the butcher for instance so you know probably chinese people will eat pork malays don't eat pork uh because mm. it's not halal gotcha. so yeah. So for Malays, Muslims, I think the correct term is for Muslims uh, who don't eat pork, then, you know, if, if they're not willing to feed pork, then it will be chicken, it will be lamb, mm. mutton, because that's what yeah. they normally, because they will usually look at their cultural diet as well. Like, you know, what, what I can eat, I will share with my animal, Yeah, you know. But would you say like mutton or lamb, would, would that be too high in fat? For... No, not, not particularly. And, and remember, there's a, there's a big difference, particularly when it, comes to, uh, when it comes to dogs, there's a big difference on the effect that a cooked fat and a raw fat has on dogs, which oftentimes is something that's some, sometimes missed because uh, interestingly, people say, you say, hey, do you feed a fresh food diet? Absolutely. I cook for my dog every night, which is an it's, it's in interesting phenomenon. Uh, because they feel as if they need to cook for the dog, which in most instances doesn't harm the dog, provided that uh, they're, they're, uh, they're sufficiently low carbohydrate. But the reality is if you do have fattier meats and you cook them over time, that could lead to some pancreatic distress. Uh, and it's completely unnecessary. The, the, the dogs and cats thrive off the non-heat processed foods. They, they don't require a heat process. Um, and so one of the things I think is, is important to note, and unfortunately this isn't established scientifically to the degree that we want, but it's, there's some very good anecdotal case studies that, that show this, which is you can take a dog that, that has um, pancreatitis and you switch them to a fresh food diet, you know, not, not heat process in any way. And you may be feeding them, a, you know, fattier meat, a ribeye or something like that, or a ground chuck. Uh, and the, the, uh, the CPLI test, which is a, a common standard for assessing pancreatic distress, changes, you know, within a week um, just, by, just by moving from cooked fats to uncooked fats. You haven't, you haven't changed yeah. caloric density from fat. You've changed from fats that undergo heat process to fats that don't. Um, and so that tells you something very important about the nature of fats and the impact that they can have uh, on a dog. Yeah, you brought up this pancreatitis is a big deal over here. Um, and that's why like a lot of vets, they when they hear you're feeding a, uh, a fresh or even a raw, they'll say, no, 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 you can't feed that because of the fats. You know, they, 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 you know, they, they tell you like... Um, it's, it's not good for the dog, you know? Um, and I have some pet parents who, because they feed a kibble diet mainly 
or even a cook, as you were saying, a cooked food diet. Um, so they cook the meat and then the dog gets pancreatitis. And then yeah. I try to explain to them, like, if you fed a raw, that means a not cooked uh, diet, even if you fed meat to, to, to the dog, um, you can actually reverse the pancreatitis. But because they have this uh, fear, plus, you know, they, 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 don't, they won't take my word for it, you know, um, they will listen to their vet. So a lot of the conventional vets here in Singapore, and by the way, we only have conventionally trained vets in Singapore. We don't mm. have any holistic vets. All our, all our, some of our vets might offer holistic modalities like TCVM, acupuncture, you know. Uh, but when it comes to the approach of food is the foundation of good health, nutrition, mm. no. So every clinic that I've been to so far, you know, um, they all will sell prescription diet on the shelves, yeah. you know, and they'll tell you to come for your annual vaccination uh, thing. So in Singapore, most pet parents, even I myself, I work with a conventionally trained vet, you know, but I'm lucky that my vet is, she does, she does do acupuncture. Ooh. So she's, she's a little bit more open to the idea of a fresh food diet but she doesn't feed it herself. She only feeds a wet canned food diet, for instance, you know, for her cats. Um, but she's open to me feeding a raw food diet, you know, and I'm very clear on that, that, you know, I don't really want to feed prescription, you know. Um, but for some patients or clients, when they, when they want to talk to their vets, they have this difficulty. And, I, and I've seen some clients who tell me like, oh, I, I won't tell my vet that I feed raw food. You know, what, what is your opinion on that? Do you think it's a good thing or a bad thing? Because they're afraid of the repercussions or, you know, like tension with the vet, for instance. Yeah, it, you know, it can be a challenge. In fact, I, I, I think it's, you know, not controversial to observe that there's a challenge here in the United States. And if you, if you look at the curriculum, the educational curriculum that a vet goes through, the amount of time that they spend on nutrition, and metabolism is such a, a min minority in comparison to anything else that they experience during that educational process. Um, although that is changing in some schools, it should be noted. Uh, additionally, oftentimes any education, not all the times, but in many instances, the, the education that they receive on nutrition and metabolism is presented by companies like Hills or Mars. <laughs> um, and so their experience with food as relates to animals is a survey of commercial products. Um, and I'm oversimplifying a little bit. It's, you know, it's, it's not just that, but I'm not over dramatizing the, the general point, which is they don't, they don't look at the work that they do as being primarily driven by nutritional interventions, right? There's a heavy emphasis on surgery and rightly so. Surgeries are incredibly important uh, for animals. Uh, there is a heavy emphasis on pharmacology, rightly so. Tr tremendously important for, uh, for animals. But the reality is, is, you know, this goes back to what you touched on in the beginning of our conversation, is food is the thing that you do every day. You don't do surgery every day. You don't do drugs every day. And so that is where I think, you know, to your, to your point on this is that if there could be a shift in emphasis, even to some small or, or modest degree in the educational curriculum of veterinarians that would put a greater focus on uh, species appropriate nutrition and the differences between fresh food and, and uh, uh, commercial foods, um, I think you start to see a change in how veterinarians operate their practices. You, you would see that. And to some small degree, I've been able to observe that here in Los Angeles, um, the density of vets in the area that I live, literally there's like one, it's not an exaggeration, there's one almost every mile. It, it's incredible because so many people have companion pets here uh, in Los Angeles. 
So the great news is there's lots of vets around, which is fantastic. Uh, and what I've seen even two years ago, two and a half years ago, uh, all the food products that you see at the vets were in a bag or a can. Now they have freezers and refrigerators in their lobbies, which contain, uh, I wouldn't say completely fresh foods, but fresh-er foods. <laughs> Uh, so that's, that's a small but incremental change that's worth noting because it means that two things have happened. The most cynical version uh, is that they saw an opportunity to sell products that they weren't selling. Okay, nothing terrible about that, maybe slightly cynical. But the other is, and they had to have noticed it, the dogs that they interact with, and they interact with thousands of dogs, the ones that were fresh, bed, fresh fed were doing better. They can see that. Right. They can observe that. That's part of the landscape of, of uh, their uh, medical practice. And so that triggers something. And that's that's been my experience with vets, particularly with animals who are sick. And they see the there you see it in stark relief. Those animals that are sick, they get fresh fed. Their response is tremendous in comparison to any other form of nutrition. And vets do take notice of that because they realize, wow, the, the way that the drugs work, the way that the surgeries work, the way that any other intervention that's being used works is amplified by the fact that these dogs have better nutrition in comparison to commercial foods. So these things do, you know, the, 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 as they say, the wheels turn slowly, but they do turn. I think that's the case here. Um. There's always this talk about for, you know, the, the cynical people that um, vets, they make their money from vaccinations, you know, from sterilization, um, giving out the drugs, you know. Um, so their so-called approach, if you look at it, if you think of it in this way, is that it's a very offensive, uh, reactive uh, way of doing business. If you were to meet a vet and you were trying to educate the vet in how to change their business approach to pet wellness or pet care, you know, how, what would you say to the vet? Well, this is, I've actually had the opportunity to have precisely this conversation um, with any number of practice owners. So I've, I've received an education from veterinarians who own their practices or, or own small franchises. Uh, of, of practices. And what's the great news is, is the opportunity is there for change. Um, and and I'll, I'll reserve that for privately owned establishments. If you're running a chain, the opportunity for that change doesn't exist with the, the local franchise owner. It exists at a corporate level. And, I, and I've been in a position to, to talk to some of the big corporations and they see the opportunity, but Boy, oh boy, you know, they, they're, they have their five-year plans and it's, it's tough to introduce something new there. Doesn't mean it won't happen. Change will be slower in that regard. With, with the more private clinics and the ones that are more responsive, what they realize is that it is great for their business to respond to the desires of their customers. And I mean, there's nothing really profound in saying that. That generalizes to just about every business. So, for example, um, you know, veterinary clinics here that provide fresh foods, they have them in a refrigerator or a freezer in the office. Guess what? Their revenue from those products is good for their business. Um, for the, and there's now two in lot that I know of in the greater LA area that do this. The ones that sell titers and have now normalized this in their business, guess what? They charge the same for the titers they do for the vaccine. They've lost no business. They've lost no business. You can get the vaccine. You can get the titer. Now it's a choice that the, the pet parent makes, right? And they offer both. And they can talk about the advantages and disadvantages uh, of both. So I, I think, you know, it's, it's just like any business. The ones that are adaptive and responsive to what we're learning scientifically to the needs and desires of their customers tend to do well because they tend to be able to offer products and services that other institutions don't. And that actually ends up being a competitive advantage for them. 
Um, now, not every veterinarian is as entrepreneurial as that, but the ones who are very quickly gravitate towards it. So it's, it's actually not a hard conversation to have. Um, and the thing that I gain an appreciation for in talking to vets is how difficult it is to run a practice that gives the dogs and cats, um, you know, best medicine, so to speak, and also make it a profitable enterprise. That is not easy to do. And the same thing is true in, uh, in human medicine. You know, mo most people that get into medicine, whether it's small animal veterinary medicine or human medicine, do so primarily along altruistic lines. They want to help people. Uh, and that aspiration only gets, you know, tamped down when they get into the business of medicine, which isn't always as uh, altruistic as we, as we might want it to be. So therein lies the mm. challenge. Do you, do you think, do you feel, you know, in the fresh food feeding community, there's the saying that vets were never taught nutrition. They were, you know, they, they were marketed to basically by, you know, the, the pet food industry. Would you say the same applies for vets were not taught how to do business? Yeah, I mean, the, these, I mean, these, I think these are substantive criticism, but they're, but they're also on the surface. It, you know, does it, you know, no one has to have a PhD in these matters to sort of see it, if you will. And the, the, frankly, the vets know it, right? That I went to school to take care of dogs. I didn't go to Wharton or Harvard or Yale or Stanford to get my MBA in, in, in business, right? So they, they're acutely aware uh, of that challenge. You know, the same thing is true in human medicine. You know, if you go through your residency, you become accustomed to being in the presence of, you know, Merck and AstraZeneca and Johnson & Johnson, all these huge, uh, you know, multi-billion dollar, multinational uh, drug companies that are soliciting the institution that you work for. Um, and people do make the criticism that you know, doctors are perhaps uh, overly responsive to the solicitations of drug companies. It, it's a substantive criticism. They know it too. The question becomes, in my estimation, how do, at the end of the day, immaterial of these cofactors, how do we do two things? How do we make it economically viable for both the medical professional, the pet parent, and most importantly, the dog or the cat in question, to receive the best medicine. That's, that's the consideration, I think, that and if, if, all, if both parties, the, the medical professional and the pet parent are focused on that same goal, the opportunity for effective collaboration is there. And that's the way I really see it. There's no vet that I have ever worked with that I haven't considered a, a, a true partner um, in, in helping the animal. Because the reality is, is that without them, I can't do uh, what I do. And without them, I can't get the best medicine uh, uh, to my dog. So they're a part of the process. And that, but that process, as you, I think you so astutely pointed out, is collaborative, right? The pet parent has something to say. The vet has something to say. Let's bring that together and, and create a relationship that ultimately benefits the dog in the, in the most effective fashion. So how would you describe yourself today? Uh, well, you know, I, I, I would say uh, um, mildly happy and well-adjusted is <laughs> 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 perhaps the easiest uh, way to put it. And, and the only reason I, I characterize it in those terms is because, uh, like I mentioned before, I, I truly enjoy doing these things and am rewarded by them uh, in the sense that, look, no one doesn't feel good if they're able to help a dog, even a little bit. That, that just is intrinsically rewarding. Um, but the larger effects of having these kinds of conversations and pursuing the kind of research uh, that advances our understanding um, really sets up a longer term effect where we can live with our dogs longer and that during their lives, they are, are healthier and um, uh, living in a more optimized fashion, right? We want that for ourselves. We want that for our dogs and cats. So in your journey to date, what would you have said was the most challenging 
you know, uh, experience that you ever come across that challenged your your thinking in your approach? And did it ever make you feel like giving up? Um, I, I mean, I can tell you immediately and reflexively that the toughest case I ever worked on was, it, for me personally, it, it destroyed me. Um, was working with a dog, Akito Pet Name Jr., who's a grand white uh, pit bull, um, who ultimately died, succumbed to cancer. And what crushed me about this case was that we thought we were having success with him based on imaging. And we came to, to find out that there had been an error in acquiring some preliminary images, which gave us a false negative. And this was the first time I had ever experienced a failure of the tools of the trade. Uh, now, since that period of time, I talked to any number of radiologists, imaging specialists, uh, pathologists who said, yeah, you know, there are problems in measuring all the time. You know, taking an image is just a form of measurement. There are errors in measuring all the time. And sometimes they can be, can be costly and cost lives. It was the first time I had ever experienced that. And it was soul crushing to me because I thought, wow, we're really making great progress with this dog. Uh, this is one of our better cases. He looks great, He's jumping around. And it, we were just completely wrong. And when we realized there was an error in imaging and we realized, realized how the mistake had been made, um, it, didn't, it, it didn't make things any better because we lost the dog. And, and he, was, he was one of those dogs, you know, there are just some dogs, some cats, you look at them one time, they look at you one time, and there is an instant bond and a connection that never goes away. That was my experience with, uh, with Junior. He, was, he just became my dog, and I, and I love that dog um, profoundly. And so losing him was, was, uh, was devastating to me. But I learned a very bitter lesson, which is, you know, as powerful as the tools we have at our disposal today, and we're in a better position to offer great medicine uh, to dogs and cats today than we've ever been. Nothing works all the time. And double checking and triple checking and being hyper vigilant about everything is how you end up producing best results. So it was a very hard lesson for me, um, but I learned a tremendous amount from it, which was um, you know, as powerful and sophisticated as the tools we have today are, you still have to go back and double and triple check everything because there can be mistakes. Whether they're your own, someone else's, a failure in technology, it doesn't matter. If you make mistakes, it can, it can cost lives. Uh, and that was an instance where the, the a failure in technology fooled us into thinking we were having success where we weren't. Uh, and so that was, a, that was a tough moment for me. Um, but now I rely on that moment as a driving force to be as precise and careful as I can be in everything I do. So, you know, you're an entrepreneur yourself. Um, what, what is your superpower? What would you say is your superpower? Because um, I noticed, like I looked at your LinkedIn and, you know, you're with all these interesting companies, you know, um, you know, I maybe I mean, if I, I, you know, frankly, I don't know if any of my powers are particularly super. <laughs> um, I think there are things that I gravitate towards, just reflexively or naturally. For example, like I, I gravitate towards bringing value. So I, I put a lot of stock in. Hey, if a do I have something to offer, and b if I do have something to offer. How do I communicate and show that and demonstrate that to people who might be interested? How can I establish value, establish my worth uh, to other people and do work which is meaningful for their agendas? I care a lot about that because, you know, that is, you know, that's where the rubber meets the road, right? If you can show somebody, hey, the work that I do has some material benefit to you, there's a, a natural relationship that flows from that. So that's important to me. So I focus a lot on that. Um, you know, right now I'm working with a few colleagues to start a small uh, supplement company. 
well, you know, how to, the way I show my value to those colleagues is I have designed the entire investment perspective, which will bring money in that funds the business and, and gets it off the ground. Right. Well, they, they didn't have those skill sets. They couldn't do that. And it wasn't practical for a starting business to pay a lawyer to do that. So I stepped in and I brought them together and helped them do that. So they could see like, oh, wow. Okay. This puts us in a position to receive investment because otherwise all we have is a cute PowerPoint slide and that, that you know, no one's going to write a check for that. So th those are the types of things that like, if I, if I, I feel like I, I have something to offer in, in that, in those departments. So what kind of, you know, like if someone was to approach you, you know, for a project, what are the things that are you looking for? Um, you know, number one is that it's interesting. You know, so much of what happens in business is iterative. You know, so it's sort of what I would call like better mousetrap. Um, you know, there, and that's not to say I'm not being dismissive you there's a real reason to have a slightly better mousetrap than the one before it because it may be cheaper it may be more effective it may be have a lower environmental footprint who knows maybe better for the mouse there's all kinds of reasons to build a better mousetrap and to have a better mousetrap but from the standpoint of innovation and having an impact is very small right um, so those types of things tend to be less interesting, uh, for me, it, you know, it's like a car that goes from zero to 60 in four seconds instead of five seconds. I mean, it's, I'm happy that it can be done, but it's just not particularly interesting. Uh, whereas, you know, for example, uh, everyone loves chocolate. What if I can make a chocolate that's delicious and tasty, um, but that doesn't alter your metabolism when you eat it? Right. That is interesting to me. Why? No one's really done it. Uh, and the few attempts that have been made weren't particularly good. Mm -hmm. So if I can make a product that does that, what am I doing? Well, I'm giving people what they want. Everyone wants to eat chocolate. Why? Because it's great. The only challenge is, you know, it has some negative side effects. So if I can give somebody what they want, give them the culinary experience that they want, but do so in a fashion that actually moves them forward metabolically, that is interesting. So like those are the kinds of projects that I uh, tend to gravitate towards. I, I actually helped start a company that, that, that did that. Um, so, you know, I think those are the things, if it's intriguing, if it's interesting, if it's innovative in a, in a novel fashion, man, that gets me wound up, you know? For example, like, you know, with Keto Pet, there really wasn't any innovation there. The ideas were old. The science was old. Much of the work had already been done in humans and rats. The only thing we did was to say, hey, let's try it on dogs at a sufficient scale to learn something. And also let's track very accurately what it is that we're doing and share it with everyone. So we brought that to the table, but there was no big idea there. It was kind of an old idea that, you know, just hadn't gained a lot of traction in the popular consciousness and hadn't been applied in that way. So we were just the, the group that showed us, okay, we're going to try that. Um, so it doesn't, it doesn't have to always be, the the idea the, the idea doesn't always have to be new sometimes great ideas are just sitting on the shelf and just no one took it off the shelf and tried it mm. so that sometimes that you know keto pet's a great example of that like for people who did who looking from the outside in they thought it was very novel but if you understand the history of uh, of uh, ketogenic diet you know, ketogenic diet was started in the 1920s it's Sloan Kettering for uh, uh, kids that had refractive epilepsy that didn't respond well to drug therapies. That's it. I mean, it's not new. Um, and as an intervention had been cancer, there have been a ton of anecdotal cases and some very good work uh, in rats. So there's great, great research on it. So not new. 
a ketogenic diet was a hundred years old. Uh, and most of the important work had already been done. Mm. So we didn't, we didn't really come up with anything other than saying, look, let's take this idea that's old. that's already been tried, already been great work done on it, but let's, let's just take that and put it to the dogs. Okay. That was our contribution, but we were standing on the shoulders of giants to be able to do that. Right. We didn't, without that prior history, forget it. There's no keto. Mm. You know, so that, that, you know, sometimes when, when, when you see that part of the development of something, it, it doesn't make it any less great. It just shows you like what it takes to get there. Right. Had we had to have come up with a metabolic theory of cancer on our own to do keto pet sanctuary, no keto pet sanctuary, <laughs> but thank God we had, you know, a hundred years of amazing researchers and scientists that had already done all this great work so that we could try something like that. So would you say you prefer working as a group collaboratively with others or doing something on your own like your very own vision, your own company. Oh, which one do you prefer? Collaborate. I mean, to, to get anything done of consequence, you have to collaborate. You know what I mean? That's, that's like saying, you know what? Forget, forget those guys. I'm just going to, you know, launch rockets on my own. <laughs> like you can't, you can't do it. You, you have to have a group of people that, that not just that share the same vision as you do, but they share the same ethic in terms of how you want to achieve that vision. And, and the reality is anything interesting that's ever happened in the sciences has happened as a result of collaboration. In our Western culture, we like to put the one person up there and say, look at this amazing, you know, the guy who discovered blah, blah, blah. It's almost always a guy, right? Uh, but the real truth is, is there was like 15 people in the lab and they all contributed. You know what I mean? That's the, the, what really happened. And that's like so much in life. You know, a lot of people associate keto pet to me. And yes, I, I played a role. There's, there's no, that, that is part of the history. But I can name to you every single person that contributed to that. And the list is greater than 50. Mm. You, you know what I mean? So yeah, I, I, I love that people come to me and say, oh, tell me about the work. And yeah, yes, of course, happy to do so. But the idea that you know, I sort of cooked this up, it just can't be true because to do something like that requires input from so many talented individuals, you know? You, you know, one of the first people I, I interviewed uh, at the beginning of my podcast, actually it's the second person, was Terry Swanson. Oh yeah, uh, hyperbar- without, yeah. Without Terry, there's no keto pet. There just isn't. Mm. She, she's mm. one of those key individuals that without her and her colleague, Susan, just forget it. Yeah. You know, so like that, that that's a great example. Um, and her contribution was monumental. What would you like your legacy to be? Well, you know, that's, that's tough to say in the, in, in to the degree that, um, it, you know, it's, it's hard to read the tea leaves as to what, what the future will hold. And the, the truth is, is for me, I don't look too closely at that precisely because of what you mentioned before. You, you're right. My path in life has sort of been this very winding trail, not, not particularly linear uh, and not particularly rational in many respects, because oftentimes where I've ended up has just been because I've been inspired by something and gravitated towards it. Um, so, you know, I leave myself very open as to what the future might hold. Um, and, you know, I, I'm not much of a backwards looker in, in the sense that while I think history and, and learning from the past is extremely important, uh, I never think that the past was better, or I should say perhaps I don't idealize it. I always aspire that the future should be better and perhaps some contribution I make can contribute towards that effect. So, you know, we'll have to see what the legacy ends up being. Um, but, you know, I don't have too much of a preconceived notion as to what that should be, at least yet. So would you say you're more of an optimist than a pessimist or a practical person? How would you describe yourself that way? Um, well, you know, I, 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 I actually, I like reality a lot. 
Um, you know, the, there was a, you, you might know, uh, there's a, a famous uh, boxer, Mike Tyson, who, and he was quoting somebody else, but in, in the modern epic, he was attributed as saying, uh, you know, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face, right? Reality is like that. The, the great news about reality is it will never let you down. It will always show you what's actually going on. So that's where I try to stay to, to the best degree that I can. I think there's a lot of reasons to be optimistic about certain things and to be pessimistic about others. Um, but at the end of the day, if, if you have a goal and you have a target, even if it's a near-term goal, trying to be as real as you can about it, I think offers a person the best chance to reach it. Um, and so that, that's really where I, I try to keep myself to the degree that I can. It's not always there. You know, sometimes my optimism uh, stretches me a little bit and sometimes my pessimism limits me a little bit. Uh, but I think if I, if I can stay between those two goalposts, that's where, that's where I've served myself the best. Okay. And who, who would you say inspires you? Gosh, you know, there, there's, there's quite a few people, um, but I, I think may, maybe the folks that have really kind of given me n not just inspiration, but motivation um, are folks like, you know, the, the one that comes to mind, I, you, may, you may be familiar with his work as a philosopher and scientist named Bertrand Russell. Uh, he was a guy that had a lot to say uh, in the earlier part of the last century. I think he's, he's given me uh, quite a bit to think about. Um, and uh, I always go back to, to his works on, uh, in, the, in those days, they didn't really have the term scientist. Everyone was just a natural philosopher. It's what we today would call scientists, which is just essentially people who are curious about the way the natural world works. Uh, he was a guy that that put a lot in my mind, and, and I've read most of his most of his papers and and books. Um, and what are you currently reading now? Uh, well, right now I've got uh, it's over there. I've got a stack a stack of uh, scientific papers that have uh, uh, I, I haven't waded through all of them. I'm about a third of the way through. Uh, but I just finished a really interesting um, biography on Leonardo da Vinci, which I've, I've read biographies about him before. This is a, a, a newer one. And the thing that, that kind of grabbed my attention uh, from that book was that this was a guy who really had the ability to integrate across disciplines. Um, you know, he was into physiology, he was into engineering, he was into, you know, what are now called fluid dynamics, hydraulics in, the, in that epic. Um, he, he took, he was profoundly adept uh, and skilled at taking root principles from one discipline and applying them in another discipline. And, you know, he's known for his art, obviously, but his contributions to all these other fields are just really amazing. Uh, and I and I just finished that book uh, recently, and it and it really wound my mind up. <laughs> so what I'm getting from you is that you like to read and you like to learn, even like if it's different opinions and different styles, because you mentioned you read different types of biographies of Leonardo da Vinci. Now a lot of people will just read one book, one title, and they think that's it. You know, that's all they need to know. Uh, in terms of, you know, okay, I read a biography by this guy, you know, of this guy, by this guy, one, one book, and they think they've, that's it, you know, um, which personally, I find it's very limiting in terms of perception and looking at different views. And what I found interesting of what you just said is that you have a very curious mind and you're always looking at different angles and different perspectives, even like today talking to you, you know, I, I like the fact that, you know, you always try to give a very balanced um, opinion, you know, 
not just one heavy side, but you know, like you, you try to look at different points of view to, to bridge the gap between, say, two opposing forces. You know, I think that's what you what you like to do for learning, you know, because you have such a brainy, I mean, like, you know, like just listening to you today, you have a very, very amazing brain. You're you're a very smart cookie, you know, you you're thinking a lot. So what is your day normally like, you know? Um, well, it's, it's not particularly exciting. Uh, I get up pretty early in the morning. Um, I, I always like to start the day by looking at the markets. So I, I like to see what's going on economically in the world. Um, and then usually by, you know, midday or early afternoon, I've gotten into, you know, the main, the main body of work I'm communicating with people. And then I try to use the latter part of the day when I can to, to read or to learn or uh, to, to finish up uh, communication. So that's a, that's a typical weekday. And then I try to use the weekends for things like this, where maybe there's a, a longer format communication uh, like this, where we can spend more time and have a, a broader, you know, less, uh, less business oriented uh, conversation. So it's not super exciting um, in the sense that, you know, like I haven't traveled, I haven't gone anywhere since late last year. Uh, and prior to that, my, I was traveling quite frequently. Uh, which is exciting and fun for me. I do enjoy it. And I, and I, do, being, I do enjoy being able to travel uh, to meet with people and, and pursue various projects. Um, hopefully that will change for all of us uh, as this year progresses. So in terms of physical exercise, what, 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 are, what do you enjoy doing? Um, I mean, there's really two things. And, you know, this is where living in uh, Southern California has its advantages. Uh, maybe a 15 minute drive from, uh, from Gold's Gym. Um, and that, you know, for me is, is, a, is a great privilege because that's, as they call it, the Mecca. Uh, so there's all kinds of phenomenal personalities there and amazing physiques and athletes uh, that are there on a daily basis. So that, that's a lot of fun and enjoyable and highly motivating. Um, and then, you know, with the beaches here, you can get up very early in the morning and as the sun comes up, you can run along the beach. Uh, and that just, that, that's tough to beat. So do, are you currently a pet parent to any pets at the moment? Or? Oh yeah, uh, two dogs, uh, three cats. Yeah. Wow, and they get on. They do. I mean, the, the thing is, is that, you know, the, the, the interspecies dynamic uh, is it, it's, it's more comedic than anything else. Um, so for example, one of my dogs behaves like the cats and she's a smaller dog. So she's very athletic and like the cats, she can jump up onto counters. I've really never seen anything like this before. Um, and then, you know, the other dog really has no interest in the cats, uh, but the cats have tremendous interest in him and come up with all kinds of creative ways to get him to play with them, <laughs> which is hilarious uh, because he couldn't, he couldn't be more disinterested. But them attempting to inspire him to play is one of the most enjoyable things you could ever watch. <laughs> so throughout your whole journey to date, what would you say you're most proud of? Um, you know, I think the, if, there, if I've been able to contribute anything up to this point is to introduce people to ideas that they take and go do amazing things with. If I've achieved that at any level, that does, that does spark some pride in me. Um, and part of it really comes from a selfish motivation, which is a realization that I may, I may be able to come up with some good things, but the likelihood that someone else is going to do it better than me is probably pretty high. So if I can get the ideas to them, I'll probably be, be able to sit back and watch one of the most entertaining processes of discovery uh, and work that would far supersede my whatever I could do. And I have tremendous interest in that because it's fun, it's entertaining, and it's also in turn insp inspiring for me. Um, so that, you know, if I, if I have some pride, it's, it's in getting ideas to people that they can then run with and do amazing things. So would you say your, 
you're more of a role of a teacher or something else? How would you describe what you do? Yeah, I I don't consider myself, you know, particularly professorial. Um, But the, the, I'll, I'll say this. I'm a, I think I'm a, I gravitate towards being a curious person, partly because like real life is just so interesting. And, you know, the sciences themselves are, you know, fascinating at, at, at such a level of depth and breadth. You, you're never going to run out of stuff. And so the things that impact me that really, you know, get me going and, and get me excited to pursue, I find that if I, if I can share those with somebody and get them as excited as, as I am, I consider that I chalk that up as a success. Well, Daniel Rego, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me today. Uh, you have a beautiful brain, you know. Uh, I think we, you know, if we had, if time wasn't a factor, I, I can, I think we can sit down and like hash out lots and lots of topics because, you know, I think with your experience, with your wide experience and what you've seen and done, uh, you have a lot to share. So. You know, I just want to thank you on behalf of all the pet parents that, you know, you've you've touched physically and even not like me, you know, over here in Singapore, you've made an impact in my life and how I interact with people. I just want to say thank you so much, you know, for all that you've done for animals. No, thank this you. is great. And I very much appreciate the, uh, the invitation and uh, hopefully we'll have an opportunity to, uh, to connect again soon. Wow, I'm so thankful and grateful that you took the time to listen to this podcast. It would mean the world to me if you could subscribe, download, rate, review, and share this with others whom you care about that may enjoy it as well. Thank you, and remember to be kind to yourself and others. Have a awesome day, everyone.